Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. If you're a fan of funny, smart, snarky women writers like Samantha Irby, Lindy West, Sloane Crossley, or Jenny Larson, listen up. From award-winning TV writer Laura Belgrave, Tough Titties is a hilarious collection of full-body cringe, watch-through-your-fingers life lessons her own husband calls loser sex in the city. Laura's wildly relatable coming-of-age stories include hate-following her sixth-grade bully on social media decades later, moving home post-college to measure her self-worth in hookups with Upper East Side bartenders, dating a sociopathic man-baby, proving herself in the early 90s at New York's coolest magazine as the world's worst intern, falling for get-rich-quick schemes on the internet, and most of all, saying tough titties to the supposed twos in life. Driving a car, being on time, handing in your paperwork, learning to roast a chicken, and having kids. Peppered with cutting insights on our confusing, self-helpy culture that calls hair removal self-care and tells us to give our 110%, but also to give zero fucks, tough titties will leave you feeling better about, well, everything. Let's face it, we're all tired of shame spiraling after being told what to do when we know we're not going to do any of it. Tough Titties comes out June 13th from Hachette Books. Order from your favorite local bookstore or shop online at bookshop.org. Hi, everyone. I'm Jordi, and with us today is Allison Goodman, author of the book we will be discussing today, The Benevolent Society of Ill-Mannered Ladies. Allison, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, Jordi. Great to be here. I'm so excited to discuss this book with you. I felt like the story took me on a whirlwind of adventures and emotions that span from suspense to blossoming love, and I honestly laughed out loud at several moments. I remember sitting there reading the book and I'm usually with my sister and I had to stop and be like, you need to hear this. This is absolutely hilarious. And it felt like the perfect combination of mystery, adventure, and romance. So if you could let us know, what is the story behind the Benevolent Society of Ill-Mannered Ladies and what inspired you to write it? Sure. So the Benevolent Society of Ill-Mannered Ladies is about two fierce 42-year-old spinster sisters. And they're in the Regency era and they're using their privilege and their invisibility as old maids. And I put that in inverted commas because they're only 42, but old maids to pull other women out of perilous situations. So that's the kind of setup of the, of the book. It's written in three kind of novellas or episodes. Each one is a complete story in itself, but they're all interlinked. I wanted to write a story that where the protagonist was older and had that wisdom of the older woman and also some of the snark of the older woman. <laughs> it's also that I wanted to look at how society viewed older women and how older women responded to that as well. 
It's a lot of fun, but there is a quite serious side to it as well. I call it a serious romp. I can totally agree with that. And as you said, we follow Gus and Julia along for many daring adventures and endeavors to assist women and people in need. How do these two women continuously find themselves roped into these types of situations? Without trying to do any spoilers, when a book is working well, it's when that character that is being is being created is making the decisions that are just taking them deeper and deeper into the situations and because of their character. There's no way that Gus is not going to meet a challenge. And there is no way that Julia is not going to back up her sister. <laughs> That's their character. Within those characters, there is their own kind of mistaken beliefs and, and flaws that are going to create problems for them as they go into those adventures. Each character has their own kind of learning arc, um, particularly Gus, who is the character narrator of the story. It's written in first person. So we're in her mind and, and with her view of things. As they come up against society's um, misogyny, because the Regency was an incredibly misogynistic period, but you can see some of the things that are, are there in that period that are still having their kind of tail end in, in, in present day. There's a particularly nefarious thing called coverture of the time. And that's when a woman married, she completely lost her legal identity by law. All her assets were given to the, the marriage part, the male. All her, all her wealth, all her, her lands, her assets, and her body. And we see that still being played out in our current laws. It was like the 1960s of the early 1800s. There's so much was happening. A prime minister was assassinated in the, you know, in the in the actual government halls. There was Lord Byron became a literary sensation overnight, and we see the kind of the first intense fandom. Young ladies were carrying his miniature around rather than you know, pasting a poster on the wall. You'd have a lovely, beautifully painted miniature pinned to your bosom. <laughs> That's insane. I didn't know actually that that was a thing that people would do. <laughs> They followed him around, like his fans followed him around, literally from town to town. That's you know, that's dedication right there. Yeah, so it's a it's a really intensely interesting period, and also there was a little bit more agency for women. It was just before the Victorian period. The Victorian period is sometimes seen as being a backlash to the freedoms that were happening within the Regency era. Having said that, it was still incredibly restrictive for women. So you have your doctorate on creative writing and historical research that focuses on the Regency era. What intrigues you the most about this time period? I think it was because I grew up reading Georgette Heyer, sometimes pronounced Heyer. She's an English writer who wrote a great number of Regency romances and adventures. And I got my first Georgette Heyer when I was 12. And just like a little duckling, I imprinted on it. I just loved that whole world of gowns and balls and, and the marriage mart and things like that. And, and the romance that was part of that as well. And then, of course, Jane Austen. So all of those things were working into, into my love of that era. Because when I started to research it, I realized just how much of a, a dark underbelly was sitting there. I love that juxtaposition of the, the darkness that was underneath it. I mean, people had to be armed when they walked around the streets because there were huge criminal presence. 
there were people, footpads, who would mug people. And I used that in, I've got another series of books called The Dark Days Club, and that's a historical fantasy where that underbelly, that darkness, literally is demonic. I call it Pride and Prejudice meets Buffy. And now it's in the Benevolent Society of Ill-Mattered Ladies, and that's straight historical. There's no fantasy aspect to it. And the underbelly is just pure humanity that existed at the time. This was the time when the Georgian rambunctiousness, the bawdiness of the Georgian era, kind of became very civilized. There was a new civility that was required by people. But you can paste civility over people, and underneath is this seething kind of suppressed emotion. And that's what I love about it. It's just this kind of juxtaposition of that. Yes. So how did ageism and sexism look like during this time period and how is it portrayed in the book? Yeah, it's very overt. It was thought to be a waste of time to educate women. They were there to marry and to have children and to look after a household. It was considered to be yeah, ridiculous to think that women could do anything outside that small sphere. They weren't supposed to you know, be doing any of the kind of financial or, or thinking work that was around at the time. Of course, there were exceptions to that. And there was a, women who had a great deal of agency. But it was very much stacked <laughs> against women. The coverture was just a, in, within law that a woman lost her legal identity. And without a legal identity, you know, you've got no recourse. Upper-class women, and Gus and Julia, are daughters of earls. They're unmarried daughters of earls. If they didn't have their own money, which they were given by their father, they would have been unable to earn a living apart from being a governess, being a paid companion to someone else, or being a burden on their family, being an unpaid babysitter, if you like, or just going from, from household to household to who would have them for however long. So it was very much a, a male-dominated society, just the sheer amount of women being forced into prostitution. There was an inordinate amount number of women in London who were involved in the sex industry. It was a very overtly misogynistic society. Yeah, I remember reading in the book, Gus and Julia have a brother named Duffy, and a lot of times Gus and Duffy would kind of go toe-to-toe with a lot of issues, specifically pertaining to, I feel like, what was happening in the household and what they were going to be able to do and where they were going to go and spend their time and stuff like that. I was definitely yeah. interesting seeing that dynamic as well because I just remember getting so annoyed and frustrated. Like, if my brother had ever told me to do any of these things, it's it would just be crazy. But it's like people yeah. had to deal with that back then. Yeah, Duffy inherited the title and with it, all of the land. And it was only their father's foresight that enabled Gus and Julia to have an independent life. He was very aware of the dynamic in his family. It was also incredibly frustrating for Gus, who is an incredibly capable woman, to be sidelined in such a manner when she's the eldest child. But of course, that was not how it was done. It was always passed down to the male in the family. That kind of constriction on their their movements even, that he has the say of what goes on in, in the family. The family name is must be kept clean and, and, and pristine. Duffy was a great character to write. I mean, writing that kind of pomposity was just hilarious. And that kind of unentitled self-belief. 
because he is male, he is better. Was so much fun to poke fun at, but yeah, he's a he is a frustrating character for Gus and and Julia being the in a sense she's the middle child, so she's kind of a peacemaker, trying to keep these two from you know going at each other's throats in the nicest possible polite way. Yes, I don't think this is too much of a spoiler or anything, but I do appreciate how Julia was able to objectively kind of. Not like pick a side, but she did pick a side on certain issues. And it was never 100% for Gus or 100% for Duffy. She really was able to see kind of like the bigger picture above the emotional state that we can get ourselves in when we're upset. Yes. Yeah. She is the, the quieter twin, but just as, just as capable and, and emotionally clever. Yes. They had the perfect balance between each other. While I was reading the book and also while you were talking, the fact that, you know, in a society like this where your husband had full reign to do whatever the heck he wanted to do, I was like, wow, you know, you could find yourselves in so many situations that are just completely out of your control, but impact your physical and mental and emotional well-being immensely. Yeah, it was written into law that you could beat your wife with a certain width of beating stick. Anything beyond that, well, that was, no, that was wrong. But there was a particular kind of, yeah, a width of, of stick that you could beat her with. Now, obviously, there was no way of not having children. A lot of women found themselves always pregnant, literally just always having children. And just to have your, your whole sense of your physical and mental well-being at the mercy of someone else, someone who could decide that they wanted to move on. Divorce was not well known then, but it required an act of parliament so that, so that you know, there wasn't a lot of divorce. There were situations where women were, were put into asylums and just to be got rid of. There's a very eye-opening meme around that lists all the reasons why women could be put into asylums, and one of them was reading a novel. Yeah, I think I remember reading about it where they warned women against reading novels and then specifically anything having to do with romance, I believe, because like it was too fanciful or something like that. It inflamed the brain. It was even thought that drinking too much tea would create a problem for women, that drinking too much coffee because the coffee was, was too stimulating. Even on kind of that level of what a woman could partake in in terms of food and drink was was being restricted and, yeah um, it, it feels like it having to do with any sort of pleasure was out of the realm of possibility <laughs> yeah, that's right all right so like we discussed about Gus and Julia they have their sisterly moments where they may argue or test but they always come back together however it seemed like Julia's belief in God and Gus's questioning faith was a sensitive subject between the two of them, and it kept coming up throughout the story. Gus and Julia are, are non-identical twins. There's that extra bond between them that and they even have their own kind of ability to just look at each other and understand what the other one's thinking on occasion. And at that time in the Regency, the Church of England was the only religion that you really could have in England. There were laws against Catholics holding certain positions in the in the government, things like that. And it was also required that everyone be a believer in in the Protestant God. And if you know anything about the way that 
Protestantism came to England, Henry VIII and all of his wives. So when I was thinking about creating the character of, of Gus, I wanted her to be of the highest echelon in society, but also an outsider. When I start creating a, a, a character within history, I try to make anything that seems quite modern to actually have its roots within that time. So when I was looking at, well, what, what was atheism doing in, in, you know, in 1812, because the book said in 1812, and in actual fact, it was, it was beginning to become more overt, but not welcome. So Shelley, the poet, was expelled from university in 1811 for writing a paper about atheism. There's always going to be people who are struggling with faith, who've lost their faith, even though it may not be recorded. That's where I decided to make Gus have a crisis of faith because I wanted her to be outside that, that society and to be questioning not only her spiritual life, but also her society, because a lot of English law and that is based on, on the Christian credo. So she's able to say, really? You know, men have this power over here and why? <laughs> you know, and so she's got more of a questioning personality and more of a questioning character. Julia is of the true faithful. She's not complicated in her faith. She believes in God and she believes that by Gus, by not believing in God, is putting herself in mortal or immortal danger. While Julia would accept Gus, whatever happened, she's very frightened for her sister. And she's you know, mourning the, the fact that, that by, not, by not believing that Gus may not accompany her into paradise, in, into heaven. I felt that, that that kind of making Gus that, that outsider and that ability to question what was being handed down at that time was important. Yeah, I found this aspect of the story very interesting because I feel like whether you apply this to faith or to any other belief that you hold, it can be very relatable. You know, anytime mm -hmm. that you've grown up with a certain thing and you start to move beyond that, it can be scary. You're questioning yourself. You're questioning everything around you. And so it just felt very relatable. Yeah, it is a, a frightening time. At one point, she says that she needs to be more of a philosopher now that she's <laughs> lost her faith. Yeah, she has to think more about each issue because there's no there's no tenant that she relies on anymore, apart from a credo that she's creating herself. And one of Gus and Julia's endeavors to help women, they find themselves at the Bothwell House, which is a sort of asylum. However, most of the women, if not all, I thought at least, had no right being at this asylum, and the treatment that they experienced was appalling. Could you share some of your research into this type of treatment and how people ended up in places like this? Yeah, most people have got a fairly kind of general idea of how horrific the early, and, and, uh, and I'll, use the, I'll use the terminology that was around then. It's not what we use now, but it was called a, an insane asylum. It was brutal. The treatments were, were basically torture. I've read a number of sort of accounts that were looking into these at the time, accounts from the time of what was working and what wasn't. And there was a new kind of reform coming through where they thought, hey, let's not shackle these people, you know, chain these people up to walls, 
and yeah, let them sit in their own fields for for yeah months on end. Let's think about treating them like humans. <laughs> and that was a new kind of thought that was coming in at the time. The whole idea was that you had to force the madness out of people, and that was through these procedures. It was like sitting in a bath with water running on people's heads for hours and hours, searing people, just horrible things. And then the Quakers decided, because there was a there was a very important case where a Quaker woman was found to be in one of these asylums, and the the Quakers were just appalled at how she was treated, and they took her out of there and they built their own facility, which was based on fresh air, exercise, good food, and and things like that. That was the beginning of a reform movement. It didn't filter through to the public facilities for quite a while, but that was sort of the beginning. And I incorporate that into, into the Benevolent Society of All Men and Ladies because I think it's important that, yes, there was horror, but there, was, there were people who were bringing enlightenment and hope as well. Yeah, and while I was reading some of the stories, it just seems kind of going back to, you know, women really didn't have much of a say in any part of their life. And it seemed like anyone who ended up at one of these facilities could end up there for something as trivial as liking books or, mm-hmm. you know, things of that nature where today it's just like part of everyday life, kind of. Yeah. It felt like the the female psyche, the female mind was always treated with a great deal of suspicion and that it that it could tip over <laughs> at any point. Which was, yeah, erroneous. That's where the sort of deep misogyny lives. This emotional temperament could could explode into something that can't be handled. All right, so my next question may be a little bit difficult, but kind of fun. <laughs> if you had to choose, would you rather be Gus or Julia? I think that I'd probably choose to be Gus. Just simply, I suppose in the sense that I, I am Gus. I am Gus. Yeah, yeah, I, love, I love Julia for her, 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 her kind and sweet, but not unbending. She's not a pushover, and her, her ability to skewer. For sure, I would tend to have to agree with you. I feel like I would like to be Gus, just because I feel like I'm more reserved and hesitant when it comes to doing stuff like that. So having Gus's kind of boldness and sense of adventure and even though she may be nervous or whatever she just puts herself out there and into these situations yeah she does throw herself in and we haven't of course spoken about lord evan belford who appears on the scene who is her basically a partner in <laughs> in adventure as well and yeah i mean i think those two together are a lot of fun and it's an interesting thing because being 42 years old and a spinster at that time i mean we're not saying that that Gus hasn't canoodled, but only on a very superficial level. So as she and Lord Evan start to you know, feel attracted to one another, it's very much a new thing for her. And, uh, that's fun to write. I also appreciated that aspect of it. Uh, seeing books where it's like, you know, you can find the love of your life later on in life. And mm-hmm. that's totally normal. And like a theme that like, it's okay. And you mentioned that you're wrapping up the second installment in this series. Yes. The first book is is three episodes. So they're like novellas, which I've got to say was 
was a very challenging structure to write, but very enjoyable too. So just to make my life even more interesting, I've just decided to do two cases, slightly longer cases in the second book. So that means the structure again just slightly changes and where things you know, fall on the, in the midpoint and things like that. It's fun for me to sort of switch things around um, and play around with, with those kind of structures. Well, I am so excited and I know the first one is, has just come, but I absolutely love this book. I love the characters and the story. It was great. Oh, thank you very much. That's so kind. Thank you. So you had mentioned that your doctorate was based on research and we discussed how that research was particularly pertaining to the Regency era. So what was it like kind of incorporating everything that you had done into this book? Yeah, my doctorate was in both creative writing and in, and so I also wrote a thesis and that thesis was on a particular research methodology that I called kinesthetic research, which some people call immersion. For me, it was going to the contemporary site of the historical setting and walking the ground and being able to see what was there in terms of what was still there from that time. This, of course, is in England and there's a lot of the history still there, but also gathering up sensory information um, and spatial information and about how the space would have been gendered because women were allowed in some spaces and they weren't allowed in others. How they moved around a space had societal expectations on it as well. So I, I was very lucky to go to England to do this. And, and in a way, I think it is quite a privileged methodology because, you know, I'm, fr- I'm from Australia, so I had to get to England and then do this, my, do this as well. But it just gives you an, an incredible three-dimensional view of that space. I incorporate that into my into my writing so that hopefully the the reader feels like they're moving through those spaces in in the book and moving through that world. And in my research, COVID hit, and of course this is a methodology that requires travel. And as we know, travel shut down. So I had to incorporate that into my thesis. So how what happens when suddenly this thing that you have an expectation of that you have an entitlement to, you know, of travel suddenly he's no longer there. Wow. You don't realize like when all of those means to getting to those places are shut down, it's very limited on what you can do. And so having to kind of extrapolate, like seeing the stuff like either through books or online or whatever, but then having the additional sensory pieces to kind of have to piece together. Well, I was lucky enough to interview a number of, of authors who use the methodology and one of them told me that that he had seen photographs of the town that he was writing about. He'd loads of photographs, Google Maps and that kind of stuff. But then he got a chance to visit it. And this was in was it Alaska or something like that. But when he got there, he realized that all of his his spatial calculations were wrong. That this building that he had assumed was huge was really small. So that's the kind of thing that you just don't get from photographs. How is my character going to be feeling when they're approaching this this huge thing or this small thing? What's their emotional response to it? That's such an important thing is that when when we go into any area, any space, we not only have a physical response, but we have an emotional, we have a societal response to it. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that often gets a great deal of richness for me from when I'm when I'm in that space. Yeah, I can imagine, especially trying to think of the 
societal aspect to that writing something that's a historical piece can be an additional factor of research, obviously, because it's like trying to get that just right. And I feel like at least reading the book, it felt like I was there. I really appreciate that. When I was talking to the other authors, we all had written to some degree the character that we were working with. So there was like an what we're doing was we were casting ourselves back through all of that research as we're walking the ground, trying to imagine what it would be like as an embodied historical character. You know, where would we be walking? How would we be walking? You know, would we, would we actually be allowed to walk there because, you know, the class system? So that was fascinating in that, you know, we are, of course, 21st century authors trying to use all of that research that we had done beforehand because every one of them did research beforehand so that they could walk in the shoes of that character. And yeah, so if you see anyone kind of wandering around looking half days, it's probably an author doing their research. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I can imagine that that's super fun, but also very difficult in order to get all of that right. Yeah, and and you never get it right. You probably never get it right. I mean, we we can't, in a sense, get it right because we're 21st century, you know, women who who don't have the constrictions on us that that they did. But, you know, you go as far as you possibly can within that kind of ability and and research. I mean, we do have an amazing amount open to us. You know, the, the internet has given us enormous resources, but still, people are still traipsing over to the place to walk through it because we are creatures of the five senses and that's how we we encounter the world and that's hopefully what what I as an author take the reader on is an emotional and sensory journey through the world. Well Alison thank you so much for coming on and talking to us today. Thank you Jordi I had a fabulous time. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for brownie points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. A well-read woman is a dangerous creature. Creature.